Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I'm a little sad that the folks in the Zendo all, for their various reasons, had to go, but this gives us a wonderful opportunity for our hybrid connection today. Thank you, Kim, for being today's timekeeper. Thank you, Marla, for being the, the online monitor for today. And, and also thanks to Rosemarie and uh, uh, um, to Susan, who was there before, and John, uh, who were there before taking on roles to support all of us in our practice. This is a wonderful gift that people give. And uh, I want to express my appreciation. I'd also like to ask, I'm going to switch to gallery view here. And I'd like to ask uh, for people to just, um, well, I'm going to have to call you by name because there's, otherwise I don't know how it'll work, but um, to say where you are and um, anything you'd like to say about connecting today with Appamata for, for the sitting and for the talk. Uh, so I'm going to start with Marla. Where are you? I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you. And thanks again for being the online monitor. So the next person I see on my screen is, uh, has the name Robert, uh, someone with a purple, uh, and uh, pardon me if I'm mispronouncing it. Can you say where you are? Yeah, I'm from Austin, Texas, and my son got me involved. He thinks he's on Zoom today, and hopefully I'll be joining you soon at your facility on a regular basis. Wonderful. Welcome. So this is your first time connecting with Appamata, is it? Uh, first time Zoom, but I have been to your uh, establishment twice with my son. Great. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, Heather, I'm calling you next. Hello, everybody. My name's Heather. Um, I'm in Austin, Texas as well. Oh, well, welcome back to Austin. Thank you. Um, it's been a long uh, time since we talked. Yeah. Uh, Darcy? Hi, everybody. I'm Darcy. I'm in Elgin, Texas, which is just a little east of Austin. <sighs> Thank you. Becky? Good morning, or yes, very early morning for you. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, I am, my name is Becky and I live in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. Becky, are you being affected by fires and smoke there in that part of British oh, Columbia? We're, we're under a severe warning about smoke. Yes, mm. the air quality. Thank you. Thank you. Sandra, good morning. Good morning. I'm from San Antonio. Glad to be here. Thank you. Rosemarie, good morning. Muted. Good morning. Uh, I'm Rosemarie <coughs> in Portly, New Jersey. Very happy to be with you all today. Thank you. Lynn, good morning. 
Hello, I'm Lynn and I'm from, uh, well, I'm in Wimberley, Texas, which is south and east of, uh, south and west of Austin. Sitting under an amazing oak tree. Mary, good morning. So nice to see you. Good morning, Joel. Good morning to everyone as well. Um, I'm in Austin, Texas, and I'm delighted to be joining everyone this morning. Thank you. And in the Zendo, Nelda or Kim, go first. Good morning. It's so good to be with you all. Glad to see you. I'm in Austin, Texas. And Kim Mosley, uh, who um, keeps Appamata running day by day. Uh, thank you for being here today. And can, I, can I confess a little sin? For the first, we have this wonderful intensive this weekend. That's not the sin. But in the intensive, we did a lot of work on breathing. And for the first time ever, I ran over the time during one of the sits because I was practicing the breathing. Uh, two and a half minutes. And I apologize for that, that you had to sit an extra two and a half minutes. So please forgive me. Breathing. Focusing on breathing and being timekeeper don't necessarily um, coincide well. So one of the first intensives I ever took part in, uh, the Zendo was full. Flint and, and Peg were there. And there was, you know, uh, as typically happens, there was a kind of a wrap up session where people reflected on their experience at the, at the uh, end of the sessions and one woman said that she'd had a lot of trouble and was thinking evil thoughts toward the timekeeper and that why didn't that timekeeper ring the bell and and all of that Just, uh, maybe you others might have had such thoughts at various times uh, but she said something funny she said that was the longest 20 minutes i ever spent and clint said well of course because it was 30 minutes <laughs> so anyway Zen joke, not not all that me tickling, but I always I always remembered it. So um, our teacher, our original teacher in Japan, who came along several several hundred years after Buddhism came to Japan, we we tend to think of him as a as a founder, but there had been people seriously practicing Buddhism for hundreds of years in Japan before Dogen, but he's kind of a reformation figure. He, he, he wanted to find a connection to the, the true essence of, of Buddha, the Buddha Dharma. And he did so in a paradoxical way. He, he asked himself a question uh, as even before he set off to China to, to study with Chinese teachers, he asked himself, well, if everybody's already perfect, if the Buddha way is already uh, fully realized in our lives, why bother to sit? Why bother to go on a pilgrimage? Why bother to read? Why bother to do any of the things that require to do? And he came up with uh, a, a revolutionary answer, which is what really makes him the founder of, of Soto Zen in Japan, which was that we sit not to achieve something, but to participate in the realization uh, mindfully of what is already happening. Uh, and that does take sitting. And it is useful to go on pilgrimages and to be reminded 
and to do all the things that we need to do to be reminded so that we don't forget our basic nature. So his most famous saying is in um, the uh, Genjo Koan, uh, where he says, to study the Buddha way, <coughs> apologies, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. When you first seek Dharma, you, are imagine, you imagine that you are far away from its environs, but Dharma is already correctly transmitted. You are immediately your original self. So these are uh, mind-blowing paradoxes, and yet very hopeful, very opening, very generous and, and compassionate in their expression. Um, so I, what I want to do today is just to talk a little bit about the sources that people draw on in, in uh, their approaches to the Buddhist path. There was the original teachings of Gautama or Gautama Buddha, uh, who uh, lived about uh, 2,600 years ago uh, in the north part of India or what is now Nepal, and uh, had many adherents. But then, toward the end of his life, fell into a kind of obscurity and was abandoned by most of his followers. Later on, those teachings were continued, and they were very important in India, but then they were suppressed in India, and they spread to Tibet, and to China, and to other Asian countries, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Japan, Korea, Myanmar. And each of those cultures had different ways of approaching the teachings of the Buddha, particularly in China and Japan, the, um, they mixed with uh, Taoism and other uh, cultural uh, expressions of the path that had already been developing in, in China. And, um, and, this, and many things shifted a great deal. Uh, part, partially that was institutional in, uh, in the early days in India, the Buddha was just a mendicant monk who was walking around begging, and uh, he had sometimes, apparently, thousands of followers who would move from place to place and, and beg among the, the townspeople that they were with. Later on, there were monasteries established, and some of those monasteries became rich and became significant economic engines in the society. Significant enough that at various times, a couple of Chinese emperors suppressed the monasteries and stole all their all their wealth uh, to to be part of the uh, the emperor's treasury, uh, and they were able to re uh, reform and to reconnect. Uh, the period of the, the flowering of the uh, koan literature that is so important in Soto Zen and in other other types of Zen. Uh, was one of those periods where there, there were uh, there vast social upheaval and uh, a breakdown of uh, the social order. And uh, the monasteries were, on the one hand, very important as 
points of stability in the society, but themselves were under threat of being raided by bandits or taken over by the emperor or various things. So the dialogues that we hear of the meetings among the Zen teachers and their students happen against this backdrop of very dramatic, um, very dramatic uh, social upheaval and, and so on. So that, that was going on. And then, the, you know, the, that Buddhism has come to the West mostly in the last century, mostly since the end of World War II, mostly through the teachings of um, teachers from uh, Japan and Korea and uh, what is now Myanmar. Uh, and have, there are various centers in the, in the United States and in Canada that uh, carry on the teachings from these different traditions. And I, I left out the Tibetan teachers as well, which are very important. <coughs> but one other thing, and uh, so a lot of the, a lot of the teachings that have come into the United States are still very traditional and focus on monastic life and the type of moment by moment, day by day, lifelong discipline that can come and support uh, awakening in the Buddhist path through a, a, a monastic, a, a way of monastic training. That's one of the threads that has been active in, in particularly in the United States. But there is another thread, which is much more psychologically focused. Uh, and uh, very much about doing the type of work that I think, uh, it, well, it's psychology. And it's relying on psychology to do the work that Dogen describes as studying the self, to forget the self, to be actualized by the myriad things, to get out of our conditioning and, and to open up to what life really is, uh, and which requires all the Buddhist virtues that the Buddha described, uh, fortitude, patience, compassion, friendliness, honesty, all these other virtues have to be active in us all the time. So I, this is what I imagine Dogen is talking about when he says, the Buddha is already correctly transmitted. You are originally, you are immediately your original self that we all have this capacity within us, even though we lead complicated lives and a lot of us have a lot going on in our heads uh, that can include some anger and some resentment and some envy and other, other emotions and psychological factors. That, but that nevertheless, all the time, we have within us this capacity to turn toward this uh, other part of ourselves, which is really true and really always there, um, which is like our original self, you know, to the extent that, uh, you know, you have to imagine what self means in a Buddhist context. But it is a, a capacity that is available to us all the time. Um, and so I'm saying that there's a, there are people who use psychology as a way of opening to this examination. And one of the main exponents of this psychological approach in, uh, in the United States was Joko Beck, the teacher of our teacher, Peg Syverson, and also who had a strong connection with our other main teacher, Flint Sparks, as well. And uh, Joko spent a lot of time talking about what goes on up here or in 
whatever space we consider uh, our minds operating in. So what I want to do is read about five pages from this book that came out a couple years ago, which here it is, Ordinary Wonder. Okay, there it is, back in view. Ordinary Wonder, a collection of her talks and writings uh, that were edited by her, um, her daughter, Brenda Beck Hess, and uh, that, that uh, have collected these thoughts about how psychology uh, in a way that, uh, well, uh, how psychology can help us open to connect with this broadest part of ourselves. So here's Joko, and it, um, Joko tends to be uh, very direct, and I've always imagined if I was sitting with her and I asked one of my typical questions, that she would just throw a glass of water in my face, you know, and, and that, that might be her style. But um, here she is. This is a, a, the chapter entitled, See What You Do. And it begins with uh, a quote from T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. <coughs> and I beg your pardon for my coughing. Your core belief, this foundational perception of who you think you are, informs your way of dealing with your life. It's what I call basic strategy. Your basic strategy is how you believe, how you behave in reaction to the thought, I am this, therefore, this is the action I must take. So the basic strategy arising out of a core belief. I once knew a little boy who had a difficult and punishing father. His father was very strict. He yelled a lot and occasionally he hit his son. Now, naturally, this little kid had to do something to survive. He tried yelling back. That didn't work at all. He got physically punished if he did that. Uh, he tried ignoring his father. That didn't work. He tried agreeing. That didn't always work. Eventually, he found that the survival strategy that worked best was to be very quiet and docile. He became a sweet little boy who was almost invisible. That didn't work perfectly, but for whatever reason, it worked best, and he was able to occasionally get a little peace. After a while, the boy began to unconsciously respond to everything in his life with the same strategy. If something happened that he didn't like, he would shrink from it and try to disappear. The strategy became automated, and as he grew into a young man, he used it in just about every situation. It might have been a very poor strategy for some situations and a great strategy for others, but it didn't matter because it was his overriding strategy now, his habit. And more than that, uh, it was at the core of him, and he had adopted it as his basic strategy. He no longer had any choice. Whatever difficulties entered his life, he stepped back and tried to become invisible. Eventually, he grew to be an adult with only one way of dealing with difficult situations. But as we know from experience, life is unpredictable. It's flowing, and it throws up all sorts of challenges. So a simple, rigid reaction doesn't work very well. It doesn't feel good either. And yet most of us have some kind of habitual, automatic reaction left over from childhood 
that we use for almost any challenging situation. This unconscious strategy, or this unconscious basic strategy, might work pretty well for a while, but eventually for most of us, it stops working. Our strategies are all the ways that we do our life, particularly when we're troubled, so that, it, so that we don't have to feel the pain of that core belief. We do all sorts of things, and they may look very different from one person to another. One person has to be busy all the time or talking all the time. Another person always, is always so quiet that you wouldn't know they're there. Other people will tell you off in a minute. Some people will never say anything that would hurt your feelings. Strategies, strategies, strategies. Unless you learn how, you learn to know and explore your own strategy, it will be automatic. It just runs. Once we have our set way that we handle life, that's what we do. And we'll do it until we're 95. The thing that brings most people to practice is when they begin to see that the strategy is not working for them. For example, perhaps your core belief is, I can't. This is the belief underneath what you, what you do. How people would phrase this core belief can vary. They can say, it's impossible, I just can't. Even I'm worthless. The strategy is how you deal with that belief. You develop whatever you think works, uh, you think might work with that. It might be complete withdrawal. If you're really hidden away, nobody can find you. That's one way. Somebody like me would say, I absolutely can't do whatever I'm being called on to do. So therefore, I will do everything I can to do it well. It looks much better from the standpoint of the world, but it's not really any better than withdrawal. So I was good at everything I did. This is Joko speaking. So I was good at everything I did. I made sure of that because that was the only way I could handle the fear underneath. It looks good, but it's not actually a solution. Now, if somebody told me I had to walk 30 miles today, I might say, I can't do it. But there's a difference between realistically knowing I can't do something and that and, and uh, a difference with that core belief about myself that I can't do it no matter what it is. Uh, those two situations feel different and you know the difference in your body between the two. One of the hardest core beliefs is you can't make me do everything or I'm sorry, you can't make me do anything as a response to challenge. It may not be stated that way, but it's there. If no one can make you do anything, you'll resist everything in your life. I think we all have a little of that, of that in us. <coughs> you can't make me. There's held over resistance to any kind of authority. I don't care what you say. I may look like I mean it, but you can't make me. No way. Becoming aware of your basic strategy. One way to see your basic strategy is just to watch and see what you do. The next time somebody does something that you don't like, or you do something that you don't like, what do you do? Because we're, we tend to be remarkably consistent. We will all do our own strategy. Perhaps your strategy is quite active, performing, helping, accomplishing. A lot of success stories in our country are based on a core belief that says, I'm nothing, I'm incapable. So I'll spend my life proving that I am capable. That can be a very outwardly successful yet lifeless way to live. 
Or perhaps yours is more of a passive strategy, withdrawing, hiding, perhaps putting up a smokescreen of excuses, even drug use. The best way to become aware of what you do, of your strategy, is to notice an experience in which you really get everything you think you want, and then it still doesn't feel right. I'll read that again. The best way to become aware of what you do, of your strategy, is to notice an experience in which you really get everything you think you want, and then it just doesn't feel right. You're still not satisfied. Our basic strategy, you will find, is always unsatisfactory. It's limited, and even if we don't feel actively miserable, we feel uneasy, unsatisfied. Once you get an inkling that no amount of stuff, no strategy, will actually satisfy you, then you begin to be interested in practice. Otherwise, you won't do the work. You'll just run toward your next strategy. That's all. When we start to pay close attention, we begin to know all our strategies, which tend to be variations on our one basic strategy. When you are aware of your strategy, it begins to weaken. If you see that you think you have to talk all the time, for example, somewhere in the middle of one of your speeches, you'll go, oh, I'm doing that again. When you pay enough attention, it begins to enable you to return to the actual present moment, which of course can include your pain. It, it usually does. In some people, it's just numbness or something of that sort that uh, shows up as, a, as the pain, but there it is. There's nothing to judge about having a basic strategy. Once you see your strategy, what does it feel like? See if you can feel the experience beneath the strategy. The practice is in the feeling and knowing of the underlying experience, not in judging, critiquing, analyzing, or defending it. So I think that last part is very important. That, um, you know, in the famous, um, parable of the second arrow the Buddha talks about self-blame and how we encounter aspects of ourselves that are wounded and then we shoot a second arrow into ourselves by blaming ourselves for having those feelings. Uh, I'm ex extending the metaphor some, but, but basically that's how I recall this very powerful uh, teaching that the Buddha gave, that by judging ourselves instead of just being with the feelings in the moment, that we, we, um, we may think that we are uh, solving a problem, but it's really an extension of what Joko calls our strategy for uh, dealing with whatever is happening in our lives. So I'm going to stop reading there. She goes on and she talks about what it's like to surrender, what it's like to be aware of your strategy and of your core belief. Uh, I'm reminded that in another uh, a book by one of her followers, Ezra Beda, that he had a big breakthrough, he says, when he was, uh, he, he was coming to see her regularly. He was studying with her in San Diego, and he was in a lot of physical pain. He had, he had a serious physical illness that was causing great pain, and he, wa he reacted to that by being angry at everybody and everything. And he wanted some way to be able to deal with his anger. And he, he saw that, he saw the anger as the problem uh, while he was also dealing with the, the physical pain that he was in. 
And he recalls that Joko said to him, what are you believing right now? When you, when you are angry, what is the belief that you have that is underlying that? And then she led him on the process of discovering what has come to be called by followers of, of Joko Beck, core belief. What is the, how you see yourself in relation to the other people in your life. And, um, and how, if you have physical pain, and you don't believe that you deserve to be having constant physical pain, as who would believe such a thing, that uh, you could react with anger. But he says, you know, this is odd, but that it did provide him a way of uncoupling the belief from the pain and from the reactivity. And that was, a, that was what enabled him to have a sense of greater freedom in his life, even though this, the underlying situation had not changed. So what I would like to do for about 10 minutes, Marla, uh, is it possible for you to put people into breakout rooms for about 10 minutes? Sure. How many people per room would you like? Uh, let's see. We <coughs> okay, no, I don't want to do this. I, it's, it's too complicated and there's not, not really very much time. But what I want to ask you to do is just sit still for a minute Square your shoulders, raise your head up in the, in the way that Dogen describes as a way of ceremonially acknowledging that your life is part of the unfolding of the, the entire universe and that you are in this moment. Not, you're not turning away from yourself, you're examining yourself and you're being actualized by everything that's in your life, the myriad things. As it was. So just sit up straight, let that be, breathe deeply, settled into normal breathing. And then I'm going to, to um, ask you to do something while you sit. Without going into the story of your core belief, I would ask you to describe for yourself, maybe in words that you'd be willing to share with others as part of the discussion, but not necessarily. You don't have to but to describe the situation to yourself in which you are most aware of its effect on your life. So Joko gives one example that for people who talk a lot, they may stop in the middle of talking and think, oh, I'm doing that thing again. Uh, are there other ways? I'll say, I will give an example of my own. I often wake up in the morning and instead of being happy about the opportunities available for the day, there's some part of me that is saying, no, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I don't want to have to face whatever challenges are coming up. That's not all of me. And I do manage usually to get out of bed and, and go about my day and, and find some appreciation and, and happiness in my life. But I know that part is there and I know, and I can most see it when I first wake up. So what I'm asking you to do is just to think of those situations where the, the uh, core belief and the strategy uh, are available to you, where you can see them most clearly. So uh, what this means is that you're gonna be in your observer part. You're not in the part that is engaged in the story but you're in that more 
expansive, bigger container that can observe what's going on in, in the whole system and can think in systematic ways. Okay? So let's just spend three minutes sitting and um, again, thinking of, of when it is that your core beliefs and your basic strategy are most apparent to you, most available for seeing. So my question was, can you describe situations in which you are most aware of your core beliefs or your strategies and how they show up in your life? How does that come to you? Anybody have anything they would like to say about that? Rosemary, thank you. Uh, yes, um, when my schedule gets very very packed and um you know <coughs> like no no wiggle room i haven't built in time for myself time for for not doing and um i get very overwhelmed and anxious and it's it's uh yeah this is um that's one general thing and then the other one is um that one of those activities is a like a a pressure to repair or to fix alone and i and i have that alone so those are things that, that clearly go back to some core beliefs that and i you know i uh am watching it it's clear to, to watch it thank you thank you rosemary so somehow you know that you're carrying a sense of pressure a sense of uh being impelled to do something and that 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 can run up against uh activities in your daily life that make that 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 redouble it because they make it more difficult right yeah yeah because um it there's anxiety that comes from having some that kind of a schedule and you get depleted and then where are you you know the um what you talked about originally the original self you can't find it mm -hmm. yeah thank you Well, um, I'll say that this subject is one that's very present for me. This, this type of activity is one that I engage in a lot. And as I say, I just try and without blaming uh, and in a, in a kind of welcoming way, meet the part of me that, that wakes up in a panic, you know, that wakes up 
uh, unwilling to or, or wanting to withdraw from from the demands of my of my adult life. I'm 72 years old now, uh, and it is amazing that there's a part of me that is so young, and and yet is able to make its fears and its its needs known. And I think you know just to go back to my reflections at the beginning. Um, the Buddha was a great psychologist. He probed the ways in which people um, want to be alive in any moment and want to not be alive in any moment. Uh, and this, this way in which uh, our suffering is always with us, that, that as Joko pointed to in, her t in, in what I read from her talk, that whatever we do, there's going to be something unsatisfactory in it. She says it's because we are clinging to core beliefs, or we are we're we're relying on faulty strategies that were developed as uh, as children. But the Buddha the Buddha taught that it's actually inevitable that there's no way that we can avoid feeling the dissatisfaction moment by moment. The, uh, I I think of the famous uh, haiku. Uh, which says, in Kyoto, hearing a nightingale, missing Kyoto. Yeah, but that, that's a way that we have moment by moment in our lives. Even, even when we are living in the moment, we, it, it's, it's uh, part of our biological makeup, I think, and cultural makeup, to be reaching beyond the moment and wanting something more or wanting whatever's going on to end because we don't like it that much. Um, so at any rate, I believe that what Joko offers and what our teachers at Apamata offer through this psychological examination uh, very much matches up with the teachings uh, of the Buddha and, uh, and, and others who invite us to study the self and by, by studying the self in a compassionate and uh, non-blaming way to allow that, to allow the energy, uh, the, the kind of self-protective energy of that to dissipate. Marla? Yes, um, I, in hearing you talk, I realized that there is a very young part of me that believes uh, that any situation needs to be addressed with overwhelming joy you know even if it's a bad thing put a put a, a happy spotlight on it you know little mary sunshine no matter how horrible it is let's go forward let's be happy about it here's the good side of it and what that masks is the anxiety underneath it which may be completely contradictory to what's being said and um and so in my core belief, then, I believe is that the only way to be safe and the only way to be lovable is to be overwhelmingly positive, which people who get to know me very well sometimes see behind and then that's, that's when the truth is revealed. So I need to, um, obviously, from an IFS standpoint, uh, you know, calm that little girl's fears that if she's not overwhelmingly joyful about everything that she can still be loved and safe 
So um, I, this all just came up for me in hearing, in hearing this today, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Marla. Mary? Still muted. There I, there I am. Thank you, Joel, for this talk. And I love how it does combine just Joko's teaching with um, what Marla was saying, IFS, and I can join with the two women that have spoken before in terms of their adaptive parts. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I, as we were talking was this core belief for me of not being seen and the idea of being able to go back and connect it um, with, I'm a twin and one of, this is a, a comment that my mom would always make uh, was we'd ask who got fed first? And she said, whoever screamed the loudest, all right? And my twin and I have both been able to acknowledge that she's much louder. She's like, she was, I'm sure I was the one that was screaming the loudest. But what what I realized for myself is, is, is that in, in acknowledging that, although I'm not always able to stop the strategy, sometimes the strategy that I go to is I start fishing for acknowledgement. Um, and then there's the second arrow because I don't like that, right? It doesn't, it's like, it creates this, uh, you know, another part comes in and, and um, judges it. But, you know, just now, like, as I say, I don't necessarily, it, it mainly ha happens in my family of origin and close um, uh, romantic relationships. And um, just the other day, I did something different with my mom around that. And I actually asked her, I said, I'm noticing this. And she wasn't even aware that she was kind of over praising other family members. Um, so that felt really good. And um, it felt very good to be clear in my communication. So I just want to say that after a lot of practice, it, it was just like, oh, I'm going to do something different than my adaptive strategy. Um, because it was scary to do that. And for me, as, as a little girl, I think there's that terror of um, if I don't keep this strategy, there's going to be an abandonment. If, if, if it gets expressed as literally, which infant will get fed? That's, <laughs> that's very, I mean, that's literally a life strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. So that's a, a very powerful thing. So um, again, so just Joko talking about how by seeing what the strategies are without judgment, that mm -hmm. that can give us some sense of freedom. Did you did you did you have that experience? Where you yeah. were like, I can see this strategy and and I don't have to be bound by it. I, I can try and experiment. Yes, yes, it was, it was just, as I say, just this last week, I was, I went and told my brother, all right, there's this strategy for fishing. It's like, mom is this, and she's always, and then I was like, here I am, I'm wanting to him to rescue me from this interaction, you know, jumping on the, the 
the triangle. And I was like, no, this is not my brother's responsibility. This is mine too. And she's, my mom is so much older, but what happened was when I went to talk to her, um, I don't, it, I realized after the fact, I don't care if her behavior changes, but I heard myself speak up for myself and um, myself observed that happening for all of the parts, if that makes sense. And the parts were like, yes. And it was like, and then there was a dissolving of, um, of the tension and the anger that was there. It was like, oh, okay. It was, it was really pretty, pretty neat, all right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, unless there's other comments um, or, or other things that people want to say, I want to say thank you so much for joining in today and for helping me uh, talk through these topics and for, your, for, for, for what you add that illuminated what I had to say so much better. I, wanna, I also want to say, Sandra, it looks like you hurt your hand. Are you okay? No? Oh, okay. Okay, fine. I saw what looked like a bandage. But okay. Ah, arm. Oh. Shall we check and see if there's anyone in the Zendo who'd like to speak, Joel? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought Nelda or Kim would raise their hand if they wanted to. But Nelda or Kim, anything? No, thank you. Okay. It's it's feeling complete to me, so I hope the same for you. And um, we say that I'm going back to offering regular practice discussion. I've been irregularly available for people who contact me, uh, but I'm going to be offering practice discussion on Mondays uh, during the sitting period, starting tomorrow. Uh, from uh, 6.30 to 7.30, or well, about 7.25, so that we can do our uh, closing ceremony. And um, I would be honored uh, to have the chance to have practice discussion with anyone here. Thank you.